Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I wait till the end of the game. I'm hiding behind a freaking tree. Like. <laughs> and the parents are walking. What I didn't know was there was a stalker in the news. He was being stalked by a stalker at this time. Okay. It was in the news. I didn't know. So I'm hiding behind this tree. And I see Spielberg with his kid and his wife walking. My heart is beating out of my chest. This is the moment, man. Sometimes you have to just seize the moment. You only live once. I mean, hey, so I just jump out from the tree (laughs) and I'm in front of Spielberg and I just start pitching him, okay? Mr. Spielberg, I'm 23 years old. I'm from back in Japan, Japanese, African, grew up in London. I have this vision to change lives and inspire people. I want to be the next Oprah. I'm going 100 miles an hour. Like, everyone freezes like, oh shit. He's going to get killed. What's going to happen? All the parents freeze. He freezes. Everyone turns white. His wife, his Kate Capshaw, is there. After like one minute, you know, women, very smart, sizes me up. She starts laughing. He looks at her. He relaxes. He realizes because she's laughing that I'm harmless. So he relaxes. Everyone relaxes. He's like, whoa, 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 slow down. Start again. I give him my pitch again. I start, I'm 23 years old. And he laughs. He goes, you remind me of myself when I was young. Hello there, this is your host, Light Watkins, and we are back with another story from the end of the tunnel. If you are new to this podcast, I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, creatives, and basically anyone who's gone out of their way consistently to become the change that they would like to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements, other times they create documentaries, or they write books that inspire people. And in the case of this week's guest, They do all of the above. His name is Coot Blackson, and Coot hails from Ghana by way of London, by way of Los Angeles, and now he's based in Miami. And Coot is a transformational teacher, a coach, a speaker, a podcaster, and he's author of two very, very transformational books, You Are the One and The Magic of Surrender. I've personally known Coot for years. He's one of those guys who, when you're around him, you can just tell that he's seen things and he knows things. And Coot has this really quiet sense of peace and serenity that is contagious. And pretty much everything about this guy is inspirational and motivational. And out of all of the luminaries that I've interviewed on this podcast, I would say that Coot has probably the most fascinating background that I've ever heard. Long story short, his parents got married without ever meeting. They did not speak the same language. His dad is from Ghana. His mom is from Japan. And so he tells that story. His dad was also referred to as a miracle worker. He was a healer. And Coot tells that story, too. 
He knew that he was destined to be a teacher and a speaker early on, but he had no idea how it would happen. And he just started taking leap of faith after leap of faith and trusted that everything would work out. And that's exactly what happened. On top of that, Coot is an amazing storyteller, as you'll see, and that's one of the reasons why I found his most recent book so engaging. He tells these stories that are not only entertaining, but I think they'll have you taking leaps of faith in your own life, which is why it's called The Magic of Surrender. The idea is our path requires less control and more surrender than we're usually comfortable with. And in order to allow it to unfold, we have to become practiced at the art of letting go. This was a fun conversation, guys. Coot and I have a lot of overlaps in our life stories when it comes to those leaps of faith. So I was super excited about getting his take on some of the types of experiences that we both shared. And if you resonate with my perspective, I think you're really going to enjoy hearing his perspective a lot. But before we get into our conversation, I want to let you know about my online community, which is called the Happiness Insiders. The Happiness Insiders basically picks up where this podcast leaves off as the overall goal of sharing these conversations with you is to remind all of us that we each have a greater purpose in this world, which is also known as a personal mission. And while it's one thing to know that intellectually, it's another thing to actually take leaps of faith in the direction of our mission. And so that's the goal of the Happiness Insiders. It's about creating a safe space that gives us the tools for cultivating happiness within through various inner practices like meditation and gratitude and weekly goal setting and exercises for overcoming fear and finding our purpose and accessing our potential. And then to use all of that to day by day, create a more purposeful life. So if you're ready for that type of spiritual adventure, you can get more information about it at thehappinessinsiders.com, which I will also include in the show notes. There is a free three-day trial as well, and you'll get to start the seven-day meditation kickstart for free by joining that free three-day trial. So check it out when you can. It's thehappinessinsiders.com. And for now, let's get to the story behind the story of Mr. Coot Blackson and see exactly how he became this international transformational leader and speaker. Coot, it's an honor, man, to have you on the podcast. You and I have crossed paths and known of each other for years now, and I've been an admirer of yours for a very long time. And I didn't know a whole lot about the backstory until I got a chance to read your most recent book, The Magic of Surrender. And we have a lot of overlapping experiences as well. So I mean, I'm really excited to dive in and talk a little bit more about how you became Coot Blackson. So thanks for coming on the podcast, brother. It's great to be here. When I saw you interviewing me, I was excited. So it's great yeah. to be here. So man, I like to start the conversations off talking about childhood. You have a very unconventional backstory. Can you talk a little bit about why were you born in Ghana? Why were you in London? Yeah, why was yeah. your mom Japanese? Why was yeah, your dad? Cool. Why didn't they speak the same language? Like, what, what was How did all that happen? People ask me where I'm from, and they think it's a simple question, especially like when I'm on the street, right? And oh, where are you from? I'm like, where am I born? What do you mean? So I was born in Ghana, <laughs> West Africa. My father's from Ghana. My mother's Japanese. I grew up in London. I lived in Los Angeles, now Miami and partly Mexico, as we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so 
Let me start with how my parents met, because I think yeah. that would provide the real context. Story. Yeah. So my yeah. father is this really traditional Ghanaian male yeah, and a great man in his own way. And so when my father was, this is in the 40s, yeah, when my father was about eight years old in Ghana, West Africa, he would have these visions of a Japanese guru, kind of like the, imagine the Yogananda of Japan. Basically, yeah. someone, the yogi type, spiritual meditation teacher, a guy called Masaharu Taniguchi, who's very well known in Japan, millions of followers. And he didn't know who he was, but this man would come to my father in his dreams as a young boy and would teach him about life and the cosmos and the mysteries and the purpose and spiritual practices. And this was in Africa, right? So very unusual. When my father was 15, he had this sort of a Saul into Paul conversion on the streets of Ghana, where he fell to the ground, lightning bolt hit him, saw the light, gave his life to Jesus, became a Christian, and started healing people. He started, we're talking about blind people seeing, deaf people hearing. I mean, as a 15-year-old kid, he took the words of Jesus, literally, the things that I do, you can do these things and more. So he's like, well, Jesus said it, it's in the Bible, let me do it. So he's very innocent. And so he started putting his hands on people, people started getting healed, and thousands of people started coming. So he started to develop this reputation as the miracle man of Africa at a very young age. When he was 18, 19, he started his first church, And then from 19 to 37, he built 300 churches, hundreds of thousands of followers. The king of Ghana, the presidents of Ghana and West Africa would come to him. And so when he was 37, he was married. His first wife died. So he had three kids. He's in a store in Ghana, West Africa, in the 70s, mid 70s. A book falls off the shelf. He looks at the back of the book. He sees the face of this Japanese guru who's been coming to him in his dreams since he was eight. He's completely shocked. He can't believe it. He's like, I didn't even know this guy was real. So he writes to this man. This is pre-internet, obviously. Writes to this man. Says, you've been teaching me since I was a young boy. You're my teacher, but I didn't know you were a real person. And so this man sends his son-in-law to Ghana to meet my father. The son-in-law is so impressed by what my father's built and the church is. And at this point, by the way, my father had been to India in the 60s. And I didn't know this till I was in my 20s. My father went to India, had these, we could say, enlightenment experiences in caves and meditating and the Ganges. And so he's become, my father's become very mystical at this point, very mystical spirituality, Christianity. And so the son of the guru invites my father to go to Japan on a lecture tour to meet the guru and travel with the guru. My father says, yes. My father says, look, Before you leave, my first wife has died. I'm looking for a wife. I believe in the power of prayer. Would you pray for me to find a wife? The man says, sure. The son goes back to Japan, gives a lecture in Tokyo, tells everyone about the dates that my father was going to be coming with the guru to go on this tour. My mother, this was her spiritual guru, this Japanese man. So my mother grew up in this organization. She's 28. Now in Japan, if you're not married by 28 years old, It's over. You might as well be 60. You know, it's crazy. You've got to be married at 21, 22. So she's not married. She's not feeling a connection with anyone. At 28, she says a prayer. Her prayer is simply this. Her prayer is, God, I will marry anyone you tell me to marry. Like, you know, many times we have all of these ideas and these sort of criteria and preconceived notions of who we think we should be with and what the person should look like. And we write it down on the poster board and we don't realize that we're limiting our, we're limiting what the universe can express and manifest. And so she said, I marry anyone you tell me to marry, God, 
Just make it clear. I don't care if it's black, white, green, tall, short, fat, poor, street cleaner. Just make it clear that this is my aligned soulmate, you know, karmic husband. Just make it clear to me. She's in the audience when the son is speaking about my father. She says she feels chills in her body. This is my husband. She just has this knowing. She writes to my father. My father's in London. A letter gets rerouted to him. He picks up the letter. He's like, he opens the letter. Nothing romantic. You know, Japanese folks are kind of shy. My mother says, I look forward to hearing you speak in Japan. My father says, this is my wife, writes to her. In his first letter, he says, would you be open to moving to Ghana? She writes back. She doesn't speak English. Translation to her sister. If it's God's will, he writes back and says, it's God's will, marry me. They haven't seen each other. They haven't met. They haven't spoken. They can't even speak the same damn language. You know, they're just trusting. They just talk about surrender. They're just surrendering. They agree to get married sight unseen. My father goes to Japan, meets the guru, goes on the lecture tour, meets my mother for 45 minutes. They can't speak. They have chaperones because it's old school Japan. They have chaperones. They can't speak to each other. They're using dictionaries. Are you sure you want to marry me? Yes, I'll marry you. I'll, 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 you're, my, you're my soulmate. They get married. Now, the challenge is my father didn't have very much money by Japanese standards. So how do you throw a wedding? If you're a foreigner, you got to represent and respect the parents through a ceremony. He doesn't have the money. So in his meditation, he just hears, it's already done, relax. Six weeks of going on this tour, he goes to his mailbox. There is an envelope in his mailbox. Like He opens the envelope, $7,000 in the 70s, $7,000 in cash, no name. All it says is, this is for your wedding. My father didn't speak to anyone, didn't tell anyone. It just showed up. And that was kind of how they got married, went on their honeymoon and Voila, I was born pretty much a year later. And that's how they met. And so I grew up in a very, honestly, people say it's so unique, but it just seemed kind of normal. You know, I grew up in a very spiritual context in an environment that was really devoted to service and uh, oriented to the divine, so to speak, you know. And, And so every Sunday we were going to church. By the time I was born, Luckily, and I feel blessed, my father was very spiritual in nature. So I grew up around meditation and spirituality. And my first memories as a young boy was literally seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor. She picks up the sand that my father walks on. He doesn't know. He's just walking. She picks up the sand, stands up, and is healed. And so week after week, I grew up seeing blind people see and deaf people hear. And he would look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, why are you in this wheelchair? You're not sick. But I haven't walked in 10 years. Do you believe? Stand up. If you believe, stand up. Stand up. Boom. And miracles would happen. But it, it seemed totally normal, normal for me. And so when I was three, so born in Ghana, when I was three, my father was the spiritual teacher to the president at the time. He was the best friend. He was the teacher. There was a coup. Uh, Rawlings came in, killed the guy. My father had to go into exile. They were looking for him because they were so close. My father happened to be in London. He couldn't come back. My mother and I were smuggled out of Ghana, ended up in London at age three. And that started a whole new trajectory and destiny and ended up growing up in London. And so that's a bit of that, you know, started speaking in my father's churches when I was age eight. And that's when my speaking career began. At 14, I was ordained. I knew it wasn't right. You know that feeling you get when something just isn't aligned. And at 14, I always felt this deep desire as a young kid to uh, help people and serve people and make a difference. There was always a sense for me that 
my life wasn't really my life. It was somehow to be in service to humanity. I didn't know what that would look like. So I'll never forget. I'm 14. My father announces to the congregation, my son is taking over my ministry. He's the successor. And I'm thinking to myself, well, no, no one really discussed this with me, you know, and, and I look at my mother on stage and everyone's excited. And my father looks at me and he keeps going and I'm in complete shock. And it's all this turmoil going on inside. And, and my heart sank because I knew that this wasn't my path. And I saw my entire life set out for me, my entire future, future set out for me, but I knew this wasn't my path. But I think I was too afraid at the time to speak my truth. I was too afraid to confront my father. I was too afraid that if I spoke my truth and dared to reveal how I really felt, then I would be outcast, I'd be alone, I'd be abandoned, I'd lose this relationship. And so I got ordained as a minister at 14 with a lot of responsibility. And for four years, went through a lot of turmoil and soul searching and confusion and depression and just a lot of stirring inside. And it was when I was 18, I read a book by Krishnamurti, and I could really relate to Krishnamurti's life and some similarities that he was chosen, I was chosen. And then he, in much later years, chose to leave everything behind. At 18, I looked into my future, and I realized that I could be successful by everyone else's standards, following the expected path. But if I didn't have myself, if I didn't have my truth, if I didn't have my integrity, if I didn't have my own essence, then what do I have? And when I projected into my future, age 20, age 30, age 40, I felt such pain and I knew what I had to do. And what I had to do was confront my father and leave. And it was terrifying as hell. But at 17, I spoke to him, told him I wasn't taking over, left everything behind and came to the U.S. You grew up with your father in the house, right? Until you were yes. three, at least. But then you tell a story of sneaking into the church at night and all of that when you were like 10 or yeah, 12. Yeah, so yeah. did you somehow come back to your dad? Did he, did he come to London with you all and start the church there? Did you go back oh, to Ghana at so, some point? Yeah. So, so, so my father, so, so my father had all these churches in Ghana. So like huge operation, massive, right? But then he was in London, couldn't come mm-hmm. back. So he was in exile. Then my mother and I came to London. And we met my father there. And then my father, what does a miracle worker do but do miracles? So he starts healing people in London. Before you knew it, a church just exploded in London and there were three, four, five thousand people coming every Sunday. And so as a result, we couldn't go back to Ghana because of the situation, the political situation. And we ended up staying in London. And that's how we ended up having to stay in London. And sometimes things that you don't understand in the moment that seem like the worst thing in the moment turn out to be the best thing in the moment. Because I think back to, wow, what would my life have been like if I had been raised in Ghana? It would have been very different. So that's how we ended up having to stay in London. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, 
I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. When you were much older, you asked, or maybe he told you about the mechanics of being the miracle worker, because you talked about that in your book. Yeah. But I'm curious, when you were a kid and yeah. you were hearing these stories and, and yeah. hearing about the woman walking from the dirt and all that, how did you frame that in your own mind? Because I know there also is a bit of, you know, there's some projection that happens when you're a kid where you want to be like your dad, perhaps. And or your dad is wanting to raise his son right, so he's giving your, his son the playbook of how life kind of works. So, was there a conversation happening in the house around no, this? Never. And what was your understanding of how this whole thing worked? Never. And were you at school, like trying to heal your friends at school <laughs> based on what you saw your dad do? No, just to get personal, you know, like my father and I weren't close. Going, he was always gone, and and he was like this iconic figure just gone and threatened with the people. And so it's really me and my mother. And so I loved him. I wanted to be like him. I wanted his validation and approval, you know, just my father. I just wanted him to love me and make him proud. Yet we were strangers because he was gone all the time. And, you know, there were some issues between him and my mother. We can get to that later, but we didn't speak. My father and I really didn't speak and have a real conversation of any depth and real substance till I was probably 21 years old. I mean, literally. I mean, it was just, you know, because he's very old school African and just my way or it's my way and that's it. There's no conversation. And so he just came from a very different generation, a different culture, and he was this bigger than life figure and gone. And so we didn't have a conversation. I would have loved that he sat me down, you know, and mentored me, you know, uh, like in the Matrix with was Neo and Morpheus and taught me meditation. Nothing. What I really got was through osmosis and watching my father, because I would be around all the time. Everything I really learned was through watching him and observing him and seeing how he lived his life. That was the teaching. He never sat down and said, hey, this is how it works. And this is what you do. And this is, you know, what goes on. And he just lived his life. And I watched what did you take away from watching him? Like as a kid, I mean, not, obviously it's a different thing yeah, to look, look back look, now. I, I, I didn't think anything, honestly, was, was strange. I, you know, I'd go to school and tell people about these miracles that would happen. And so I didn't have a reference point that my life was anything different. I go to school, like let's say you were in school with me, Light, and I'd be like, hey, Light, yeah, yeah, this person got healed. This person came in blind and they 
they would think I was crazy. I didn't and understand. People would tease you, I'm sure. Think you were I got crazy. teased. I was an outcast. I was laughed <laughs> at. People thought I was crazy, a weirdo. And you were chubby and it's like, this and, is and chubby I little. Chubby. And I did, I, so I didn't understand, what, isn't this everyone's life? Until a few years into getting teased and, you know, laughed at. And I'm like, oh, this is not everyone's life. And so pretty soon I was honestly living as a kid a double life. There was an entire part of me, the spiritual dimension as a kid, because at age eight, I would go to my father's library and there were literally thousands, like an entire wall of books. We're talking everyone from Wayne Dyer, Chopra, Marion Williamson, Dan, Dan Millman, Louise Hay, to Blavatsky, to Brahmana Maharishi, Maharishi Meshyogi, you know, Nisargadatta Maharaj, all of these Eastern Krishnamurti. And so as a young boy, age eight, I started to go to his library, read all these books and meditate and practice, you know, the stuff that Yogananda was talking about just on my own by myself. And so this was a whole part of myself as a kid that I couldn't speak to my other 10 year old friends about. So it was like I was living my, an entirely different life. So I'd go to school, be really popular in school, play soccer, get good grades. Everyone loved me. And then I would go home, do my homework and read and meditate for four hours. And so there was a whole part of my life that no one understood. So I think as a kid, I often felt outcast, not in the in club. I often felt not understood. I often felt very, shall we say, alone, you know, because like, who, who do you talk to about? I'm having these spiritual experiences at 12 years old and connecting. I'm having these dreams of Muktananda and Sai, but all these different gurus that I was reading about coming to me in my dreams and so who do I speak to about this stuff? And so on one level, I was very connected. On another level, I felt very alone. And it was an interesting dichotomy because there was like, for instance, one Sunday, imagine as a 12-year-old kid, maybe 13, my father says, my, my son is going to do the healing service next week. We didn't talk about this life. My father didn't sit me down and said, <laughs> this is how you do it, son. My father, he just, you know, it's basically sink or swim. You just access the innate intelligence and wisdom inside of you when, you when you're thrown off of the airplane. And so my father just threw me off the airplane and I just had to go with it. And so next Sunday, 6,000 people show up instead of four to 5,000. And I can't tell my friends about this. So I go through this entire day of healing people, so to speak, not having any real conscious idea what I was doing. So for instance, 13 years old, my son's doing the healing service. Everyone lines up. My father says, Stan, I have no idea what I'm no idea what I'm doing. All I remember is what my father does, which is he stands there, goes into a zone, puts his hands on people. So I'm like, well, this is what we do. And so this is what I did. Put my hands on the first person. The first person dropped to the floor. And I kind of went into a bit of a trance. And I have no recollection. I couldn't give you any special technique. I can't take any credit. All I remember is something happened. The, the, the first time it happened for me was age eight, when my father threw me on stage, said, my son's going to give the sermon. I was asleep on the front row. That's how bored I was. When I got on stage, I disappeared and something came through. I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what happened. All I remember is I was gone and something came through. And that, that's been a process almost ever since in a, certain, in a certain way. And so when I started healing people at age 13, 
was a similar thing. People claim to have gotten healed. People claim to have had things shift. I have no idea. And so that was the first experience of healing. And it was interesting, but how do you go from that on Sunday to Monday, going to school and speaking with your friends about, yeah, yeah, I just went through this healing circle. So, So there's a whole part of myself that I had to hide, the spiritual part. So I felt very lonely, lonely growing up in a certain way, if I'm honest. If you're meditating hours a day after your homework, I mean, anyone who meditates on a consistent basis, even for 20 minutes a day, eventually something's going to come through them, right? It's going to be a question that they need to answer. It's going to be curiosity about something. Then the next question is, what do you do with that? And so I'm wondering if there's a connection between your after-school meditation activities and you sneaking into your dad's church at night. And yeah, these you, you, know, you know, the, the, the sneaking into my dad's church at night was, yeah, I would sneak into my dad's church at night and speak to the empty chairs. And I would visualize souls around the world. I'd visualize myself in like Madison Square Garden or big hotel rooms, just inspiring people. And, you know, I would, I would give seminars for three, four hours sometimes on the weekends, just literally giving seminars. It was real. And so this was a passion for me. You know, here's what did happen, though. When I started meditating very deeply, it became impossible to deny the deeper truth that I felt at age 14. It became impossible to deny that the path my father chose of becoming a minister and taking over his operation and taking it to the next level, it became painfully evident that this was not my path the more I went deep into my own soul. And it was a feeling more than it. It was a feeling of, as I quieted my mind, it was an increasing feeling of something doesn't fit. Something isn't right. And, you know, as a kid, I tried to distract myself and play sports and do things. But the more I went quiet, it became more evident and painful that it wasn't right. And that pain only grew, that discord, that internal misalignment only grew the more quiet I became because it, for me, it felt like I was listening to a deeper dimension of truth, you know? And so I think many times one of the ways that we keep ourselves stuck as human beings are all the ways we don't tell ourselves the truth, all the ways we lie to ourselves, all the ways we rationalize, all the ways we pretend, all the ways we bullshit, all the ways we we make excuses in our mind and the mind then convinces us that the excuses we're making are kind of valid and many times they're not. And so I think many times the mind can make shit up about shit and justify it even though it's not true. And so in that moment, the deeper I went, the more I knew the truth of my soul that this was not my path, this was not my destiny, this was not my trajectory for my life, but it was honestly terrifying. It was freaking terrifying. What you're doing now, you're very much speaking to large groups of people, you're making a positive impact. So I'm curious, when you say it wasn't (laughs) your path, what about that situation did you identify as a 14-year-old that was not aligned? Like, was it being in London? Was it being in Christianity? Was it yeah. this idea of healing? What, what was it exactly? I, I think it was, it, it was a feeling more than anything. It was a resonance. It was a feeling. But it was also the structure of religion and church. Nothing against religion. People can be whatever religion they want. Beautiful. But for me and my dharma, I couldn't deny that 
my path wasn't through the church or through an organized theme or through a religious theme. I just knew it needed to be different. And that's why when I read Krishnamurti and he talked mm. about truth, you know, is not a Buddhist or Christian thing, truth. Something about his story stirred me deeply to have to tell myself the truth. And so it was the structure, it was the organization, it was, it was the format, it was the religion thing. And it just felt like that's not it. But I'll be honest, I was in denial for a long while because I was terrified. I was terrified that if I told the truth, my life was over. If I told the truth, I was a bad person. If I told the truth, I was betraying my father. If I told the truth, I'd lose that relationship with my father. And I think that's why so many, if I dared to truly be myself, you wouldn't love me. And so I hid myself, you know, and hid my truth for years and said nothing, said nothing. But I knew, I knew Mm -hmm. the entire time. And I think many times we know the truth. We know when something's not aligned. We know when we're in a relationship that's not quite connecting. We know when we're in a job that isn't quite right. We know when we're betraying ourselves, but I think we, we often rationalize to keep ourselves safe, to stay comfortable, to survive, to protect our identity, to get love, validation, and approval. You watch your dad or you heard about your dad <laughs> starting up all these churches. There's thousands yeah. of people. I'm sure thousands. the collection plate is going around. So your dad is doing, sounds like he should have been doing quite well, especially in Christianity. So I'm mm-hmm. curious, how were you thinking about success as a young person? Was it about approval? Was it about making money? Was it about, I have to go and create my own thing with hundreds of churches? Like what was your, what was young Coot's idea of success at that time? You know, I didn't really think about it because really the focus of our lives was really about service. That's where I come from. You know, it's so that very, was success, being of service. That at all was costs. total sacrifice to yourself, complete sacrifice, like very different from the, and I live in America, I love America, but very different from the sort of American way in a certain sense. It was complete <laughs> self-sacrifice giving all of yourself over to a cause that's bigger than yourself, even if you die, basically, you know, and it has its own beauty, you know, but I saw my my father give his entire life and work 24-7, which is why I never saw him, 24-7. I saw my mother, bless her soul, make tremendous sacrifice to be with my father and give so much of herself at the expense of herself to be of service in the greatest way possible, that's very profound. You know, you see people like Mandela and, and Gandhi and Martin Luther King give themselves over to that which is bigger than themselves. And so that was success for me, you know. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was what, it wasn't cars or homes or any of what we consider success today by material standards. It was, it was the degree of being a service to humanity. That's what I saw. And, and here's the thing. So much of, let's say, the collection and what came in went to the cause. It went to the mission. So we lived behind my father's church. And the reason I would sneak, one of the reasons I would also sneak into my father's church to speak to the empty chairs is because my dreams were so big. Like I'd read at, at age 12, 11, 12, I started reading Jim Rohn, Jack Canfield, Tony Robbins. And I'm like, oh, these guys are giving seminars. This is not the church. So I would, the idea of success expanded to seminar rooms and audi- <laughs> auditoriums. And it's like, ah, there's a different way. And so it was like, my dreams were so big, but my reality was so small. Like my bedroom was 
like an eight by 10 tiny room. I mean, you could fit a one person bed into this room and then crawl in and that was it. And so I felt on a physical level, so limited. And that's why I would sneak into my father's church too, because I felt so free and expansive and, and I could just live a dimension of myself and my dream. I could live it out and envision it and create it into being, so to speak. And so I had a lot of dreams as a young kid, you know, and I remember, I remember my journals of like, yeah, coming at 14, I knew I was going to come to America. I knew it. And there was dreams of coming to Los Angeles because this was the Mecca of spirituality. You know, this is where everyone was from and come to Los Angeles and go into self-help and write books. And so for me, it was, it wasn't a business. It was a calling. It was, it was what I dreamed about as a kid to go into self-help and write books and inspire people. And this is all I wanted as a 14-year-old. And so this was also a, another dimension of, of success that I started dreaming about as a teenager, mm. impacting people, living in LA. And I was reading Barbara DeAngelis books and John Gray books. And when I was 14, this was a very pivotal moment in my life. I was ordained as a minister. Hadn't told my father I was not taking over. There was a conference in Miami. It's funny because I've come full circle now and I'm, in, I'm living in Miami, but there was a conference <laughs> in Miami and... I think like Louis Hay, Wayne Dyer, a guy called Reverend Ike, Gene Houston, a lot of these sort of spiritual folks were speaking at this conference. And my father and I were supposed to come. And he got sick with malaria, having come back from Ghana, and he couldn't go. He said, ah, the trip is canceled. For one month, I petitioned my mother to speak to my father to let me go. I'm 14, 15. And he said no, but somehow when it came down to it, in the end, they let me go. So I'm this 15-year-old kid who my idol, it's like meeting Messi, Pele, right? Ronaldo. I'm a 15-year-old kid, flew to Miami by myself, was chaperoned with my father's friends. But I'm in this hotel room at the Fountain Blue on the beach before it was hip. And I'm meeting Wayne Dyer. I'm meeting Louise Hay. I'm on the front row. This, for me, was a complete life change. I, it's like you're it, at the Super Bowl on the, on the grass. With it the opened my eyes crazy. to a whole new possibility. Mm -hmm. That's when my life changed too. I just came, went back with a renewed sense of possibility and inspiration and, and understand, like prior to that, I'd read about this, but now I saw, like I was touching and tasting and I saw how I could do it. It's incredible. Like I remember going back and then I had to give the sermon the first Sunday I was back and I was on fire <laughs> as a 14-year-old kid. And, and, but, but it made the internal conflict even more painful too because I knew I had to go, yet I knew I was going to basically kill my father's heart and dreams because he had all of his dreams and I was the only son from him and my mother. And so uh -huh. the pressure was on. So I knew I had to go, but I knew I was going to break his heart and that put a lot of pressure. I remember reading your first book a while ago, and I think you went into detail about that conversation yes, with yes. your dad and how hard it was. And I think there were some voice messages exchanged or something like that. I can't remember properly, but. No, no voice messages because we were living together. I'm 18. Yeah. And first I had a conversation with my mother because my mother just, you know, mother, she just was unconditional. And I said, I'm not taking over. Basically, my mother said, if this is your truth, I support you no matter what. You know, with my mother, I've always had the unconditional love and support. Like, I know I have experienced unconditional love in this lifetime because of her. And it's, it's been 
I think, the ground and foundation of my life, even unconsciously. And so she's like, I support you no matter what. You just have to have a conversation with your father. And I finally muster up the conversation with my father. And people sometimes think that before you take a leap or before you do something, you have to eradicate fear, have no fear, get rid of fear. (laughs) I was freaking terrified. I knew what I had to do, but I was terrified because I looked into my future and I saw this unknown path, like this path that was unknown. Like I didn't have a roadmap for what I was going to do. None of my friends were going to be a self-help guy, whatever that means. And so there was no roadmap, but I just knew that this path was calling me. I couldn't see how I was going to get there, had no idea where it was going to lead me. All I knew is turn right. That was it. And so I climbed the stairs to my father's bedroom. He's lying down after Sunday service. This is like going into the dragon's den. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I woke up to him and I said, Dad, I want to speak to you. Like, okay, I said, you know, I don't think I could take over the churches. It's not for me. I'm I'm expecting him to go crazy. Had you rehearsed it a few times before you went in there? I was so terrified, man. At at 17, I went to a freaking psychic. I've never been to a psychic before at at, at 17. You know, I went to a psychic. I'm like, I have this situation. And. And the psychic, basically, all I remember was, ah, everything will be fine in the end, don't worry. I didn't believe him, but, but I rehearsed it and how I'm going to tell him and how I could say it. And basically, what came out of my mouth was, I love you, but I, I don't feel to take over the churches. And I'm getting ready for the backlash and the screaming because my father was a very intense character. And it was just silence. Silence. And all he said was, are you sure? It was even more terrifying. And in that moment, I realized I had a choice to go back and retract my statement. And it was like the universe testing me. Like, am I going to own my truth? Am I going to acknowledge my truth? Am I going to claim my life? Or am I going to live the life that was carved out for me? And I, and I really felt like you can't be truly fulfilled and happy in life living someone else's version of your life. You can't be truly fulfilled and happy being someone that you're not. And I see so many people being someone that they think they should be, being someone that they're expected to be by society and social media and parents and wondering why they're miserable. And even though you might achieve and have things and have stuff and have success, if you don't have yourself, it's meaningless. To me, real success is being your authentic self fully. Real success is learning the lessons for why your soul incarnated into this existence. Real success is being able to express your most authentic self to those around you. You know, real success is that realization of what you are and expressing that in the world. And I think it wasn't conscious, but because I didn't have that, it was so painful. So when I finally spoke to him, he said, again, twice, are you sure? It was a hesitation. And I said, yeah. Okay. Silence. Looked around. That was it. I'm like, oh, shit. So, so, so before he said anything else, I left. I was trembling. I'll never forget. I went to my bedroom, the tiny room, and I cried. I cried out of relief. I cried out of gratitude. And I cried because I knew I had shattered my father's heart and his dreams. And the pain of that, I knew I had to do it. I knew I had to kill my father, so to speak. But the heartbreak and the pain of that was, was intense. And I cried. You know, I should have been happy and ecstatic. I, I wept and I cried. And, and there was a lot of deep grief in that moment because 
I've broken my father's heart, you know. We didn't speak for two years, pretty much, after that. Like, sometimes people think that when you find your purpose in life and you find your calling, yeah, it's easy. The angels come out. That's when the challenges sometimes begin. That's when the mm. difficulties begin. Not, and many times when people are faced, when they make that choice and they go in the direction of their soul's purpose and they make that choice and the shit hits the fan, things start falling apart, the challenges begin. We make the mistake sometimes of thinking, oh, I made the wrong decision. But I actually find that it's more a sign that maybe you made the right decision because now you're moving in the trajectory of your purpose your soul, our souls, I think, have to go through certain experiences and hurdles and lessons mm-hmm. to, to develop the sort of fortitude, the resilience, the mental, the emotional muscle, so that we are actually capable of fulfilling the vision and the dream that we have been given. And I think that dreams and visions are evolutionary in that they will take us on the journey of having to evolve into and become and develop into the person that is capable on the human level of fulfilling that dream and the vision. You look at Mandela, had the dream and vision, had to go through 27 years of cooking and having the cosmic chef cook him and prepare him to cultivate the forgiveness, the insight, the vision, the creativity, the compassion to become the person to to serve a world and have an impact. And so uh, I would just say to anyone, if you're going through some shit, some challenges right now, and you think you're on the right path, don't doubt it. Don't question it. Learn the lessons where you are, because learning those lessons will enable you to graduate from the level that you are and will also enable you to become the person you need to be to fulfill what you're here to fulfill. So it was difficult, man. We didn't speak for two years. You told a story about that in the book. Uh, I believe the guy's name was <clears throat> Dungali or Dungali, the Indian. Dungali. Uh, yeah, exactly. And he talked about how your breakdown is really the beginning of the yeah. breakthrough. And I just really love that mm-hmm. story. You moved to America at 18 years old with nothing. What does that mean with nothing? Can can you give us some context around? Okay. So, you know, my vision was to come to America because, Mm -hmm. uh, but for four years, I knew I was going to come to Los Angeles and I wanted to meet the self-help gurus, Tony Robbins's, Chopra's, Marianne Williamson's and go into this field. And Los Angeles was the place. They all lived in Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Santa Barbara. And so I told my mother I want to go to America, but I don't know how, because at 18, I went to a very prestigious school. I got a scholarship to this school, free, free scholarship. Everyone was doing their A-levels and going to university. I was probably the only kid out of 150 in my class that didn't go to university. So again, being an outcast. And I told my mother I want to go to America. I don't know how, because I don't have my father's support. I don't have a college education. I don't know anyone in America, and I have no money. But I feel it in my soul. I can feel it in the depth of my being that this is my path. This is where the energy of life is going. And I don't know how I'm going to get there. So one day I just said a prayer to the universe. I said, God, you give me this vision. But I felt so alone in this moment because how am I going to get there? But I said, God, I said, universe, if this vision is real, provide the way. I of myself don't know how to do this. So I started meditating, which I tended to do back then a lot when I was in, facing a, a mountain. And I'm in the library of my school, age 17, 18. I'm in the library, meditating, like literally. Someone walks up to me, hands me a magazine, 
called The Economist. I don't read The Economist, famous magazine, but I feel, you know, I feel the energy. I think it's so important that we learn to follow the flow of life. I open the magazine going, something's here. I look at the back of the magazine, it says the American government's giving away 55,000 green cards in the green card lottery. My eyes pop out. I feel chills in my body. I feel this sense that I'm going to win this thing. Going to win, I'm going to win this thing. So I enter it. I apply through this law firm. Cut a long story short, this was in April. I was told by September the 18th or the 19th, if you don't hear, then you haven't won. Every day. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to practice and see if this spiritual stuff that I've been reading about, the law of attraction, creative visualization, if this stuff really works. So I start visualizing myself in the US. I draw a fake green card on a piece of paper, color of green. I'm imagining Bill Clinton shaking my hand and welcoming me to the US. I'm visualizing every day. Every day I go to the mailbox, haven't won. Every day I go to the mailbox, no letter. By September the 18th, I'm now pissed off. This shit isn't working. God, you've just abandoned me. What the hell is going on? The next day, I think it was the 19th, I go to the mailbox. I'm sure that it's going to be there. Nothing. Now I'm mad. I'm pissed off, mad, upset. I feel totally abandoned by the universe. I said, screw it. I'm going to pack my bags, and I'm just going to go to the U.S. I mean, it's illegal, but I'm going to just go. And that night, we get a phone call. My mother picks up the phone. She says, "Could it's for you. Turns out to be the law firm I applied for the green card through. Says, we don't believe it, but you have won a green card. We just got the notification yesterday, and you won a green card. And I was hugging my mom, and I'm screaming, and I'm jumping, and I'm so excited, celebrating. And then I hear this voice in the middle of my jubilation, and it says, why are you so surprised? Did you think you weren't going to win? Like, why are you acting so surprised? And it was one of those sobering moments of, like, trust the universe. That moment, man, of winning that green card has been a pivotal moment throughout my life because there's been many moments I felt like giving up along the way, especially in the beginning stages. But remembering that moment and feeling like there is a deeper intelligence functioning in my life, there is a deeper guiding force that is unfolding my destiny that moment of winning the green card is what gave me so much faith when I felt like giving up. And so that's when I packed two suitcases and did my interview and what have you, but packed two suitcases, one suitcase full of books, self-help books, and one suitcase full of clothes and told my, my mom and dad I'm leaving. And my mom gave me, I forget if it was $800 or $1,000, let's say $1,000 at most, showed up in L.A., 18 and a half, 19 years old, showed up in Los Angeles, landed, asked the taxi guy, take me somewhere safe and cheap where I can stay for a few days, takes me to Venice freaking beach, which was bonkers back then. And that began my journey in the US and it was tough and hard. And first weeks I cried my eyes out, wondering what the hell am I doing here? And called my mother. But here's the thing, I knew, I knew I couldn't go back. I knew there was no way back. It's like, I think when we, when we have this hesitation and we take action with, with the sense of, well, there's always a way out. Sometimes when you do burn that bridge and you commit fully to something, it forces you to tap into an internal resource. When you know there's, there's no choice, there's like no retreat, no, no, no retreat, you have to move. It forces you to tap into an inner resource that sometimes you don't have to when you make excuses or you're rationalizing. Or you think, well, if it doesn't work out or you're not 100% committed. And so 
because I knew that there was no way back, my father was waiting for me to crawl back and I knew there was mm-hmm. no way back. It made me dig into parts of myself, into parts of my resilience that I think I didn't even know were there. And so that began my journey. You also mentioned an experience with your soccer coach, Mr. Johnson, Coach Johnson, and how oh, yeah. how that stayed with you in your developmental years as a speaker and, and a coach and, and everything that you're doing now. What was that experience that, that, that lingered in those days? Yeah. I mean, the story being, you're talking about the soccer story yeah, on the field. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah it, it was, a, it was, it was a, such a small experience, but you never know how people impact you. I was really into soccer as a, as a teenager and even thought of, had dreams of becoming pro. I was pretty good, but obviously on a different path. And so I remember we were in practice at school one day and we were playing and in practice, my team, we, our team was losing and uh, disaster. And, and the soccer coach, Mr. Johnson, goes inside and being kids, we just, we just basically gave up and just started being stupid and, you know, started throwing the ball like American football players. And we, we were like being idiots on the field, you know, and completely disrespectful because we were losing. And... All I hear was this loud yell from Mr. Johnson. It's like, boys, what are you doing? Come inside. And we, we were caught red-handed being stupid. And he sits us down and he gives us this whole lecture and says, I was watching you guys for the last 20 minutes you know, act like idiots and you're a disgrace. And for two hours, he puts on a videotape of this soccer team called Liverpool. And he really instilled into me the level of excellence, the commitment to excellence, the commitment to being brilliant. And I'll never forget, I mean, the essence of it, of what I took away was you don't show up and give your best for anyone else. Whether anyone else is watching or not, we thought nobody was watching, so it didn't matter. So we were just being mediocre. You don't show up and give your best for anyone else. You do it for yourself. Because when you do it for yourself, you develop the internal trust, you develop the internal resilience, you develop the internal respect. And when you commit to excellence for yourself, that's the commitment. And that's what it really takes to be truly great. Like real greatness isn't because someone's watching. Real greatness isn't because you're on TV or on social media or on a stage. Real greatness is it's how you live your life moment to moment. It's how you treat people. It's how you live your life. It's how you do your everyday life. That's what greatness is every moment. And from that conversation that he had with me, it really inspired me in a very profound way to dare to be great, to dare to be great, not for anyone else, not because someone's going to tell me good job or people are going to see on social media, just, just because that's what I'm committed to. And if someone happens to be around Great. And if not, great. This is how I'm living. And it really had a huge impact on my life in a huge way. How did it show up in those first couple, the early years of LA yeah. when you were selling cars and working at restaurants? And you, going- you, you know, for instance, I was a fat kid and then I started running every day. But I'm talking like every day, every day. And so simple things like whether it was snowing, whether it was 3 a.m., whether it's 5 a.m., whether it's 11 p.m., whether I'm teaching, whether I'm working 20 hours, I wake up and I run every day. 
when I was going to Japan with my mother to see my grandparents and we had to wake up to be at the airport at six, I'd wake up at two. It didn't matter. For me, the commitment to myself and that internal showing up, it, it creates an inner alignment that over time, we begin to generate a sense of internal power within ourselves so that when we show up for ourselves and we show up for ourselves and we show up for ourselves and we commit to living in a certain way that is consistent with our truth, because we are in alignment, then I really believe when we act and when we speak, because all parts of us are in coherence and alignment, when we act and when we speak, our words have a different frequency. Our words have a different power. Our words have a different potency because we're not fragmented. And so for me in LA, I came to LA, had nothing. I mean, I had nothing. And there were days when I was eating bread for a week, you know, and I'm embarrassed to stay, stealing food from supermarkets. And but one simple thing I did every day was I ran every day, six miles a day, every day. Poor, homeless, depressed, lonely. I ran every day. I knew that if I could do that small thing every day, if I could get myself to do that small thing every day, then there was a level of mastery I had over my mind and my body. And if I could get myself to do that small thing, I could get myself to direct my energy to do the bigger thing. But if I can't get myself to do the small thing, then how am I going to get myself to do the big thing? You know, mm. so I, th I think that greatness starts with the small. And sometimes we think that, ah, Bruce Lee, born that way. Muhammad Ali, born that way. Gandhi, born that way. Buddha, born that way. But we don't realize that most of these people, greatness, I think, is a moment-to-moment -moment choice that we make over time, that we start to cultivate our internal resilience through the choice we make. And every time we make the choice, we access a deeper dimension of our greatness. The challenge is many times we want to be great, but we don't want to make the sacrifice or dedicate ourselves in the way that's necessary. We want to be like Mandela. We want to be like Buddha. We want to be like Jesus, but we don't want to do what they did, but we want the, the result. And so to me, freedom, that level of freedom or power isn't free. It requires a level of sacrifice to a degree, or shall we say dedication, being dedicated to a vision, a purpose, a reason that is often bigger than our limitations, you know, to something mm. that is bigger than ourselves. And so one thing that has saved me is the simple act of working out and physically exercising every day, even in those moments from the beginning, because I knew if I could do that, I could do the next thing. You have yeah. this really beautiful reframe that you posted many years ago after running one of, uh, it was a marathon in LA. I don't know if it was your first marathon. Or it, was, it was a marathon that you ran. And I never forget this. You posted on Facebook. It was very short. You said, I just ran a marathon. I didn't run it in 26 miles. I ran it in one mile, 26 times. That was the first marathon I ran. Yeah. I, I was like, man, that was, that just hit me, you know? And I've been, I think about that all the time, whenever I'm doing anything that's tedious, that's, that I want to quit on. I always come back to that, that reef. In fact, I have it in my book. I quoted you in my book, uh, knowing where to look, which came out about three weeks after your book um, came out. So it's not the big things we do once in a while. 
that make the difference. It's the small things we do consistently over time that in the time that we do them don't seem to make a difference that really mm-hmm. com- that really compound, you know, over time to sculpt and create the foundation of our mm-hmm. being and our personality. And so I think many times as human beings, we underestimate the power of the small. We want the big. We want 100, but we can't manage 10. We want to save the world and make this huge difference on humanity, but we can't help the neighbor next to us. You know, we can't respond to the need in the moment. And I think in our culture today, we've become obsessed with speed and exponential growth. And you got to hack your way there, just hack it. But I don't think you can hack integrity and hack greatness. It requires putting in the daily discipline and the work and the meditation and that daily dedication. And and I think when you do that, you build a foundation inside of yourself that is so strong that there's dimensions and layers to you that build so that when the winds blow and the storms of life blow, people that don't have the foundation collapse. The people that do have that foundation that is built over time are able to be resilient and stay connected. Now, is it true you went up to Spielberg at his kids' soccer game to try to? <laughs> true story. Well, well, how did that? How do you even get? How do you find out where Spielberg's kids are playing soccer? Okay. Like, what is that? Just a little backstory. I had this vision <laughs> in, in my early twenties of I wanted to be like Oprah, right? I mean, he didn't want to be like Oprah, but I, I was ser- like I was serious about having a TV show and being like Oprah, and came very close. Was offered shows, but before I was offered my show. I started researching Hollywood because I knew nothing about Hollywood. And, and I started reading about all of these visionary people with the intention of seeing who could give me my break. And when I read about Spielberg, I felt he was unconventional. This was a guy who jumped the fence at Universal and did unconventional things. So I thought, okay, this guy might understand, you know, and he's visionary and he's rich and he owns DreamWorks. So I read his book and I had a crazy friend who knew someone this guy believed in me, but he knew someone who knew Spielberg, producer. So he calls the producer and says, you know, can you introduce Coop to Spielberg? What kind of crazy question is that, right? The guy, so I called the guy up and said, hey, can you introduce me to Spielberg? He's like, are you nuts? I mean, I can't just call Spielberg and just introduce him to some random guy. I said, I want to be the next Oprah, change the world, inspiration, his entertainment, you know, pitch my whole vision to this guy. And I think he was kind of charmed. And he said, Look, I can't introduce you to Spielberg because I just can't do it. But I have a friend that his kids play soccer with Spielberg. Let me introduce you to my friend and just chat with him. So I called the friend up, the producer's friend, and I gave him my whole pitch again. I want to do this talk show and change the world and da 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 and, you know, bring people together. And I want to meet Spielberg. I know you, you, your kids play soccer with Spielberg. He's like... I can't introduce you to Steven Spielberg. You're crazy. But, you know, but, but I hear your kids play soccer with Spielberg. You know what I'm saying? I said, could you at least let me know where they play soccer? He goes, if you tell anyone that I told you where, I will kill you. But you didn't hear it from me. So another angel, he, he literally tells me, he goes, this is where we play soccer. It was in the Pacific Palisades, uh, you know, Palisades yeah. where the post sure. office is, right? That yeah, little yeah, park. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like 22 years old, for something in my mid to early 20s. 
I put my suit on. Like I have, I have a suit. This is like back in the day, man. I have, I have this beige suit. I thought I was pimping, and I put together a. <laughs> I put together a you know Kinkos. Go to Kinkos. Put together a press kit with my picture on it. Type my bio. Had this VHS tape of being. I was on one TV show at the time for like two minutes, and I wrote a handwritten letter to Stephen Spielberg. Four pages, handwritten letter, referencing why he should give me chance, referencing his books. I'm like selling Spielberg in this letter, handwritten. Dear Mr. Spielberg, would you like to launch the global number one TV show that changes the world? You know, on and on. So I show up the first week on a Saturday, 8 a.m. Spielberg's not there. The kids are there playing. Spielberg's not there. I come back the next week, park in this parking lot. Granted, I'm trembling, okay? I think we have to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And this is something I've consistently done in my life. I haven't been the smartest person, the most intelligent person, the richest person, the, you know, fill in the blank. But one thing I do do is I consistently trust my intuition, don't question and push myself outside of my comfort zone, probably more than most. That's been a secret for me. And so I show up at the freaking park, park my car, I look around the corner of this park. Lo and behold, I see Steven Spielberg in the park, in the middle of the field with his wife and his kids playing. One of his kids, he adopted an African-American kid. So I'm like, okay, you know, he's not going to be racist. Okay, this is good. All right, let's go. Okay. So I'm thinking to myself, do I approach him in the middle of the game? I don't know how to do this. Do I approach him in the middle of the game? Or do it would be weird approaching him in the middle of the game. And I wait till the end of the game. I'm hiding behind a freaking tree. Like, <laughs> I'm hiding behind the tree. And 30 people, the, the parents are walking. What I didn't know was there was a stalker in the news. He was being stalked by a stalker at this time. Okay. It was in the news. I didn't know. So I'm hiding, like, I'm hiding behind this tree. And I see Spielberg with his kid and his wife walking. My heart is beating out of my chest. This is the moment, man. Sometimes you have to just seize the moment. You only live once. I mean, hey, so I just jump out from the tree <laughs> and I'm in front of Spielberg and I just start pitching him. Okay. Mr. Spielberg, I'm 23 years old. I'm from back in Japan, Japanese, African, grew up in London. I have this vision to change lives and inspire people. I want to be the next Oprah. I'm going at 100 miles an hour. Like, Everyone freezes like, oh, shit, he's going to get killed. What's going to happen? All the parents freeze. He freezes. Everyone turns white. His wife, his Kate Capshaw, is there. After like one minute, you know, women, very smart, sizes me up. She starts laughing. He looks at her. He relaxes. She laughs. He realizes because she's laughing that I'm harmless. So he relaxes. Everyone relaxes. He's like, whoa, 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 slow down. Start again. I give him my pitch again. I start, I'm 23 years old. And he laughs. He goes, you remind me of myself when I was young. Because what can I do for you? I said, I want to do a TV show with DreamWorks, change the world. I want to make a difference. I want to inspire people. And you're the guy, you know, Sidney Scheinberg gave you a shot at Universal. I want you to give me a shot and let's change the world together. Help me, help you. Let's, I'm just going off. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed. I've never shared this stuff on the podcast. Though. And so... He looks at me and he said, you're very interesting. Give me what you have. I give him my package. He walks off. Everyone is looking like, 
what the hell just happened? This parent comes up to me. He's like, what was that? What just happened? I go off thinking, honestly, I did it. It was good. Nothing's going to happen. That was a Saturday. Monday morning, I get a phone call. This is Mr. Spielberg's assistant. He really was impressed with you. And he's going to set up a meeting. We, basically, what, what happened was DreamWorks weren't doing any TV talk shows, you know, daytime talk shows mm-hmm. anymore in film. But he said he was really impressed with you that over the weekend, he called Buena Vista Television at Disney, set up a big meeting for you over there with some TV executive that he wants you to meet. And he's really impressed with you. And so I was like, wow. Cut a long story short. I go into this meeting with this Disney executive and she's like, I don't know what the hell happened, but I got a phone call from Spielberg over the weekend raving about this guy. And I don't know if we can do anything, but if Spielberg calls, we have to take the meeting. So anyway, so it led to that beautiful meeting. And that was my Spielberg story. (laughs) (laughs) So I think in life, bro, the the essence is if you feel a calling, take the risk, jump, move, Mm. act. Life is short. And I think in so many ways as human beings, we play safe. We play safe because we're afraid of the worst case scenario. We play right. safe because we're afraid we're going to get rejected. We play safe because we're afraid it won't happen. We play safe and then we die full of regrets. So mm. I think the worst thing that happens if we take the risk is sometimes we don't take action because it becomes a sneaky way that the ego uses to protect ourselves from putting ourselves on the line. Because if we don't put ourselves on the line and really commit, then we can always live in the hope of the future fantasy of the possibility of what could be, but we don't have to face the reality. And I think in life, fortune favors the bold. And I think it's when we truly follow, courageously follow our soul, that life begins to truly conspire and support us. Maybe not in the ways we thought, but in the ways that we need. To juxtapose that wonderful story with, speaking of worst case scenarios, can you share the story of giving the talk and oh. the two people? Oh my God. Because uh, <laughs> I want people, you know, it's it's like, yeah. when you yeah. hear that story, it's like, yeah, of course, I'm going to go up to the Hugh Jackman or whoever, but then there's this other thing that also happens that you have to kind of reframe. So being on your purpose, in my experience, is just a series of reframes yeah. to no, empower sure. yourself instead of seeing yourself you know, as the victim. What I do want people to know before I share that story is during that time, you know, I was really committed to doing a talk show. I had this idea that that was going to be my path and that was going to be my destiny. And I was offered a show. I ended up turning it down. We don't have to go into that. But I was rejected so many times. Like I was laughed out of me. When I say laughed, I was laughed out of meetings. (laughs) Love out of meetings, (laughs) embarrassed out of meetings, pushed out of me. I mean, it was embarrassing, humbling, you know, ego crushing, but we must persevere if you believe in something. Sometimes, though, things don't quite work out the way you thought they were going to work out. And so when I look back now, I'm really glad that the TV talk show didn't happen Mm. as much as I wanted it to happen. Because I realized now, had it happened, number one, 
I wasn't really ready. It would have collapsed. Number two, I probably would have gone down a completely, I don't want to say wrong path, but I would have gone down a path that probably wasn't that aligned because of there were levels of maturity that I still needed to, to deepen into. And I probably wouldn't have gone as deep into my own sort of spiritual, mental, psychological development to be able to do what I've been doing over the last 10, 15 years, you know? And, and so sometimes things not working out is grace. Sometimes things not working out, how we feel is, is a blessing. And so to your question, yeah, this was, again, in the beginning stages of, of coming to America, I was, I think you're talking about when I, when I did a speaking event and two people showed up. This was one of my first seminars. And so up until this point, for like eight months to a year, I was promoting seminars for other people, Les Brown, Jim Rohn. So I would go into a company like a Century 21, a Remax, for free. And I would speak for free. And at the end, take five minutes and enroll them into a seminar, right? So I started learning how to sell a little bit. And I was passionate about the product. And eventually, people said, hey, do you do seminars? And do you speak? And, and I thought, well, people are asking. Maybe I'll create my own seminar and promote myself. Real old school stuff. And speaking two, three times a day for free. So I began to promote myself. This is before internet, putting flyers up and calling friends. This was a free event, right? And so I figured I'd had maybe two, 300 people come to my event because I put so much promotion, told so many people, got my hair cut, put my best suit on, go down to, isn't it, I guess what would be considered now Playa Vista on Lincoln mm-hmm. on the way to the airport. There's a hotel mm-hmm. there. And I think it was the Radisson or something at the time. And so I showed up to this hotel fully expecting 200 people in my free event so that I could enroll them into the paid event. <laughs> And, I, you know, the event starts at 7.30. I'm there at 7. There's no one. I'm there at 7.15. There's no one. I go, well, there's two people. 7.30, the event's starting. There's like two people. Like, I mean, you know, maybe you know. I don't know if you know. But when you put your heart into something and two freaking people show up, man. Mm-hmm. But, the, but here's the, So I go into the room. And one of the two people is my good friend. So mm-hmm. technically, there's one person. My heart sank. When I say sank, just boom. And I looked at my friend, her name was Barbara. And I said to her, well, you know, there's only two people. So why don't we reschedule and do it again when more people are here and and it makes more sense? She looks at me and she says, only two people. You think it's not worth it? Only two people. Because we're two people. We're here. And we want our transformation. We came for transformation and we want our transformation. I was just stunned. I kind of realized they were right. I went to the restroom, cried my eyes out because I felt like a freaking failure. Pulled my big boy pants up, put my heart in check. But this is a moment my life changed too. Like it was, it was a very humbling moment because I remembered when I was speaking to people, to empty chairs in London. And all I wanted to do was inspire people. And the whole reason I had gotten into this field of self-help in the first place was not for fame, was not for money, was not for accolades. It was because of the true intent to serve people, truly serve people. And I remember that in that moment. I, I reawakened to that in that moment. Like, if it's really about serve, obviously it's nice to do it for bigger audiences, but if it's really about serving people and their souls, there were two people that are waiting to be served. 
And so I felt very humbled and went back into the room. Two hours, two and a half hours later, I poured my heart. I gave a seminar to two people <laughs> for two and a half hours and shared my heart. And when they left, they thanked me. They were very grateful. But I sat in the room by myself afterwards and reflected on life and purpose. And I, I made another commitment in that moment that I'll never forget by myself in that room. And I, and I said that whenever I have the opportunity to touch a life and someone is trusting me with their evolution, someone is trusting me with their time, with their energy, whenever I have the opportunity to inspire and be entrusted with someone's path in some way, I will not only take that very seriously, I will give 100% and commit to that 100%. And so that moment really set my heart straight in a certain way that has really impacted me because sometimes things, things were challenging along the way. And I kept myself focused on the service. You know, I kept myself focused on it's about serving souls. You know, and, and I and actually, maybe this is a side note, but I actually think that in our modern day world of self-help that has become very sexy and market all about marketing and social media and Instagram, I really think a lot of coaches, and forgive me if I'm stepping the boundaries here in terms of whoever's listening, but I really think a lot of coaches are in it for the wrong reason. They're in it just to be famous. They're in it to make a side income. They're in it. Nothing wrong with that. But I feel as coaches, as teachers, as yogis, as facilitators, we must come from the place of truly serving another soul because what we do, what you do, what I do, is not just a business. You know, it's we are participating in another person's soul evolution. And I think when you really feel the sacredness of what that is, the magnitude of what that is, the profundity of what that is. It's so humbling that it's a real privilege to be able to participate in someone's path and journey in that way. And so I think it's so important that we come from that place of service, of true service, first and foremost. That doesn't mean you can't make money and reach a lot of people or be whatever, but I think we have to get our motivation correct as a foundation. Mm -hmm first and foremost. And so, yeah, that was a humbling moment for me, like a really humbling moment. You share all of these stories in your most recent book, The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go. So yeah. what is the through line between all of those in relation to letting go and this idea yeah. of, of surrender? I think the through line is surrender, you know, this theme of surrender and inspiring people inviting people into a deeper dimension of surrendering and living the process of surrender for themselves in their lives, moment to moment to moment. I think so often in our culture, we have a lot of misconceptions of surrender. This mm -hmm. idea that surrender is weak, right? Surrender is passive, that if you surrender, you're going to be left behind. You're going to be taken advantage of. You're going to be abused. You're going to be a doormat. If you surrender, you won't manifest your goals, dreams, and desires, and it doesn't work. And so there's this notion that it's weak to surrender. And I think the through line and the invitation that I want to ignite and inspire within people is it's getting people to really think, like, 
what if you surrender and you didn't get less, but you got more, more than you could imagine, more love, more joy, more, more of what you could imagine than you could imagine with your own mind and the limitations of your own ego. Maybe not what you expect, but more. And so that's really what I'm inviting people to, you know, and when I say surrender, it's really about letting go of control or this idea of the control that we think that we have. When I say surrender, it's to stop trying to manipulate and push and cajole and force life to be what we think it should be based on the limitation of our mind and to allow ourselves to live with an openness and a curiosity and allow ourselves to follow the flow, follow the intelligence. Because I think life has its own energy, you know? And I think when we really relax our minds and we tune in, life is flowing, life is moving, life has that intelligence. And I think part of surrender is our ability to bring ourselves in alignment with the, the intelligent flow of life, this life that has been functioning for billions of years. Like, I believe it knows what it's doing, this intelligence, like if you cut your finger, you don't have to pray, you don't even have to meditate, you don't have to be a good person. There's intelligence inside of your body, innate intelligence that knows what to do. So long as we provide the environment, get ourselves out the way, and we just be with it. it, it knows how to heal. And so I think surrender is really about bringing ourselves in alignment with life. And there is a shift in paradigm that I see happening, that I feel as human beings, we are all being invited into a new paradigm way of living. I think 2020 and what we're going through is a part of that shift. You know, to me, the old paradigm is a certain ego-based model or way of living line, which is all about me, my, what do I want? What do I want to manifest? What do I want to create? What do I want? What do I want? What do I want? I think this is a, it's an old model and it's limited. And I tell people that, sure, you might manifest what you want only to be left with a sense of dissatisfaction at a certain point, or you might manifest what you want only to be left with a sense of what you thought you wanted was not what you really wanted. It was just what you thought you wanted based on the sort of ego perspective. And I think many times our goals of what we set and what we project are often at least to the degree we are still conditioned, are often projections of our unresolved issues or needs from childhood that haven't been complete. Like, oh, I wasn't loved, I wasn't, I was bullied, I wasn't valued. So if I can just achieve or create that dream, goal, desire, or be famous or make money, then I'm going to finally be enough. And I, and I think it's never fulfilling that way. And so for me, the invitation to the book is a shift from asking the question, what do I want? To... A surrendered way of living, which is really about asking the question or a shift in the question, which is really about what is it that is seeking to express through me? How is life seeking to express through me? What, what is the deepest impulse of, of this intelligence of life that is seeking to express through me and write through me and create through me and manifest through me and, and really opening, allowing ourselves to open to being, let's say, lived, open to being lived by that which is living life itself. People might think, ah, can you live that way? Can you manifest that way? Can you create that way? Look at Jesus. Look at Bruce Lee. Look at Muhammad Ali. Look at Bob Marley. Look at Nelson Mandela. Look at Mother Teresa. Look at Martin Luther King. Look at Malaya Yousafzai. Look at Greta Thunberg. They all surrendered themselves. So surrender doesn't mean being lazy, sitting down, doing nothing. It means 
opening to life and surrendering to that deepest impulse and trusting that and, and moving in that direction and then aligning one's actions and intention and strategy and resources with that deepest intention of one's being, one's soul, one's essence. And, you know, it might look like you work 24-7, but it's in alignment. Even if it's jumping out from behind a tree in front of Steven Spielberg's family, <laughs> it's about it's about not being attached to the outcome of that. Yes, you know, you yes. did it because that's what your spirit was telling you to do. Yes. And whatever happens after that is not of your hands, right? And you you have this beautiful story at the end. We're not we don't have time to get into it, but for the person who's interested in reading this book, you it wraps it comes back around full circle because mm-hmm. you have this time off to travel during the holidays. You find yourself in this place. And then you cross oh, paths yeah, yeah. with this person who's like in that world in LA. And it's like, it happens through this really beautiful quotes, magical series of coincidences. And so I really love this book, man. It's, oh, it's, it's a book you. I wish I had read when I was 18 going out yeah. into the world, yeah. because I think the message is, is probably the most important, the most relevant message that a young person and even someone who's had a lot, a lot of life experience can use to create a life of purpose, right? Which is, again, it's not about being comfortable. It's not about making a lot of money. You're not going to get a lot of validation externally, but you will be fulfilled inside. And that's really what's going to, that's the best sleeping pill in the world is having that sense of fulfillment inside. So anyway, man, I just want to acknowledge you for being so transparent with your journey, because I think that's also important. When people see people like you, or maybe even people like me, they automatically think, oh, you know, we have some special powers or something that allows us to subject ourselves to these kinds of experiences. And that's not really what's happening at all. It's just a matter of having a little bit more courage than we have fear because the fear is there. It's still there, but you have to build the muscle, the courage muscle. So you can keep taking those little tiny little leaps of faith and following your inner guidance when and where possible. And I feel like your life is just a gold standard for that. So I just want to acknowledge you for that man appreciate you and i want to spend more time with you man because Let's we got do a lot it, bro. Let's we, do we got it. a lot i want to com- we have a lot of notes to compare from our our individual story let's do it let's do it <laughs> okay so i know you offer your boundless bliss bali is that that's still happening correct yeah the, we, we had to put on hold during the time but bali's opening up again now so Boundless Bliss Bali. That's like spiritual Navy SEALs training, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> spiritual, uh, the Navy SEALs matrix. Uh, yeah, you know, all of that. All of that. Un- Star Wars. Assist, all yeah. of that mixed into one. A deep journey, for sure. That's 12 I love days that. in Bali. I do that twice a year. Yeah, I know people who've done that and everyone raves about it. So that's that's on offer. You got these wonderful books. You are the one, the magic of surrender. You're all, you have a whole YouTube channel with a bunch of content so you're definitely leaving the world a better place than you found it and we appreciate you man thank you for having me on thank you for tuning in to my interview with coot blackson his book the magic of surrender is available everywhere books are sold and i really recommend checking out that book especially if you are at a crossroads in your life and you're not sure which way to go his book and those stories in the book will remind you about the important considerations when it comes to living a life of purpose and what it truly means to take a leap of faith the audio version is also really great if you're an audiobook fan i would say check out that version because that's the one that I read and he actually tells the story. So it's kind of like being in the room with him. You can also follow Coot on Instagram at 
Kut Blackson. That's K-U-T-E Blackson, B-L-A-C-K-S-O-N. And of course, we'll put the links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel, along with a lot of the previous episodes. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you will see my announcement that the audiobook for Knowing Where to Look is out. It is read by me, of course, and it includes bonus commentary about the backstory of some of your favorite doses of inspiration from the book. So if you are a fan of the hardcover version, you will certainly love the audiobook as a perfect companion to that hardcover version. So definitely check that out when you can. You can also find information about my Happiness Insiders community, which has that three-day free trial and a complimentary seven-day meditation kickstart if you join today. And being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. Just go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information about that and to start your free three-day trial. And finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to share these conversations Ratings matter way more than most people think, and when it comes to making the podcast more searchable, the podcasts with the most ratings are the ones that populate at the top of the list. I don't have advertisers, I don't have sponsors yet, so it's still very much a labor of love for me. Every one of these episodes, as you can imagine, takes hours of pre- and post-production, and just a tiny little way that you can help support me is just by taking 10 seconds to look down at your screen right now, click the name of the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, scroll down the previous episodes, and you'll see five blank stars. All you need to do is just tap the fifth star, the one on the far right, and you've left a rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, which I hope you will, just leave one line about what you like the most about these episodes and you've left a review. So thank you very much in advance for that. I hope to see you back here next week for the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.